Welcome to the Employment Law and HR Podcast with your host, Allison Colley. Hello and welcome to this episode 224 of the Employment Law and HR podcast. I'm your host, Alison Colley. I'm an employment solicitor and HR specialist and I run the firm Real Employment Law Advice, where together with my colleagues, we provide advice and assistance to both employers and employees on all aspects of employment law. If you have any employment law questions or you require any HR support, then please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can contact me directly by email. It's alison at realemploymentadvice.co.uk or you can call our head office on 01983 897 and we'd be happy to arrange a time for a call with a solicitor. In this week's episode of the podcast, I'm following on from the episode 223, where we started a mini-series dealing with unfair dismissal. Unfair dismissal is the basics of employment law and one of the rights that everybody understands in relation to that. And so without further ado, I'm going to get into this week's featured content. So for those of you who listened last time, you will have heard that we talked about a background unfair dismissal, covering what unfair dismissal is, the difference between constructive unfair dismissal and unfair dismissal, where the law comes from, the history behind it, the qualifying period and claims for automatic unfair dismissal. So if you didn't listen to that episode, you can go back and listen again and you can find that on my website, which is adviceforemployers.co.uk forward slash podcast. You don't have to listen to that episode before you listen to this one, but it might give you some background if you are interested in learning more about unfair dismissal. The whole series will go through it a flow and hopefully cover all all the angles. So go back and listen to that and certainly tune into the next episode for more information about unfair dismissal. So what I'm going to cover in this episode is about the fair reasons for dismissal and what they are and give you some examples of each. In order for an employer to fairly dismiss an employee, the employer must show that the reason or the principal reason for their dismissal was one of the potentially fair reasons. And there are five potentially fair reasons. And these are capability, conduct, redundancy, breach of a statutory duty or restriction and some other substantial reason. Now that's the first test in establishing if there is a fair dismissal, you have to have one of those five fair reasons. Then it goes on to a test about fairness and reasonableness. So if an employment tribunal find in all the circumstances, including the employer's size and resources, the employer acted reasonably in treating that reason as a sufficient reason for dismissal. So it has to be procedurally and substantially fair in order to meet the test to be a fair dismissal. Now what I'm going to do is in Episode three of this mini series is give you more information and go into some detail about the reasonableness tests and how it works. So really there are two tiers to establishing a fair dismissal. The first is to establish if the employer has one of the five fair reasons and then the second is to look at the reasonableness of that decision. And so in this episode I'm just looking at the reasons. When looking at the reason for dismissal, case law shows that It is the employer that has to prove that they have a potentially fair reason and what that potentially fair reason is. An employer can't just, for instance, put forward every single reason 
and um, hope that one of those sticks. So if they dismiss an employee and there's an unfair dismissal claim against them, they can't then say, well, actually, it was all five reasons, for instance. They need to have a principal reason and a genuine belief in that reason when dismissing. So the first step is to establish, if you are thinking about dismissing an employee, is establish what is the reason for the dismissal and which of those five potentially fair reasons does that fall into. The first one is about capability. Now, capability is assessed by reference to the employee's skills, aptitude, health and any other physical or mental quality. And it's in relation to the work that they're employed to do. So it's their capability to do the job that they're employed to do, not necessarily in relation to any other job that they might do for your organisation, for instance. And even if an employee is able to do part of the job, for instance, but they can't do the rest, then you could still dismiss them fairly for capability. Now, there are some other issues around disability discrimination and reasonable adjustments. But if an employee, for instance, is only able to to do 50% of their job that they were employed to do because of some capability reason or ill health, for instance, then you could potentially justify dismissing them. You wouldn't be required to keep them on just to do 50% of the work. Now, capability dismissals can be broken down into two types. The first is in relation to poor performance and the second is in relation to ill health. Both of those are capability dismissals. And also covered by capability dismissals is in relation to an employee's qualifications. So if the employee, for instance, is required to have a particular qualification in order to undertake their job, or you take them on with a view that they will maintain or obtain that qualification, and then they don't, um, and it means that they can no longer be employed by you, that would come under this reason for dismissal. Also, for instance, if you change your business and there's a requirement that all staff have a qualification, for instance, and this member of staff doesn't have that qualification or refuses to train for it, then that would be another reason for capability dismissal. So when thinking about capability, both for poor performance and for ill health, there are particular procedures that need to be followed before you can dismiss an employee for either of those. And It's not a case of an employee being off sick and then deciding actually, you know, they've been off for a couple of weeks. I don't think I want them back. So I'm going to dismiss them for capability. In my opinion, that wouldn't be a fair reason for dismissal. I think that would fall down in relation to the reasonableness test. We will be talking about that in episode three. Now, the second potentially fair reason for dismissal is conduct. And this is the one that comes up the most, in my opinion. And most people who are dismissed from their jobs or employers who have to take a decision to dismiss, it's in relation to conduct. Now, conduct falls into two types. You've got misconduct, and then you've got gross misconduct. And the difference between the two is that misconduct, it's either a series of single acts or a culmination of things that would then result in dismissal. Gross misconduct is where the employee does something that's so serious, it goes to the heart of the contract between you, and they've essentially breached their contract by their behaviour. Now, lots of us know about the you know, obvious things in relation to gross misconduct, such as stealing or violence at work. You know, those are fairly obvious. And so they would be justification for dismissing somebody for gross misconduct. And then when you dismiss somebody for gross misconduct, normally you don't give them notice. There's no requirement to give them notice because there's a breach of contract. So you have the right to terminate their employment immediately. With regards to misconduct, normally it's not as serious and therefore you would be um, required to give them notice. So those are the two sort of 
standard differences really between misconduct and gross misconduct. Now, one question I'm often asked by both employers and employees is what amounts to gross misconduct? And quite often employers will have a list of things in their staff handbook or in their contracts of employment of things that they consider to be gross misconduct. Now, whilst it's not necessary to have a full list of things that you class as gross misconduct in your contract or handbook, it is advisable to have some guidance in there, particularly if there's something that's peculiar to your industry or your particular business, something that you would be extremely concerned about if that happened. Um, so having a list is is quite good and it gives some guidance to employees. But it, by no means does that mean that an employment tribunal would find that it is gross misconduct just because it's listed in your handbook, nor would you be um, bound by that list. So you would make it clear that the list is not exhaustive. So you can't cover off every potential gross misconduct situation in a contract. But when it comes to deciding what gross misconduct is, it really is a mix of fact and law. And I quite often say to people, you know, it is about that particular circumstance. And if you're in any doubt about whether to dismiss somebody as to whether it's gross misconduct or not, then you should really get advice. You know, professionals, employment lawyers, HR professionals, they have experience. They've dealt with various cases and they will have some idea about what the employment tribunals will consider to be gross misconduct um, or not. And they'll be able to give you a view with some experience on that. So certainly get some advice if you're not sure. But just as a tester, I suppose, if you're looking at the misconduct, one thing that case law has said in the past is that gross misconduct is often seen as something which is like a deliberate wrongdoing. That's not necessarily a cover all to just say it's gross misconduct, but it is a good indicator that it would be. Now, as I've said previously in relation to the capability dismissals, you then, once you've decided on the reason, you go on to look at the reasonableness of the decision. And in relation to to conduct dismissals, there is some guidance from a case called BHS and Birchall, which gives us the Birchall test, which for um, employment lawyers is standard case law. Everybody's heard of the Birchall test. And basically, it's the way that you apply the reasonableness and the investigation in relation to deciding whether to dismiss somebody for conduct. And as I say, in part three, I'll be talking about that in more detail. So let me give you an example of a case, an interesting case, which was about conduct dismissals. And this involved swearing. Now, swearing is a funny one in terms of somebody's behaviour, behaviour at work, because what the employment tribunal do or would do is look at Actually, is there a culture in the organisation of swearing? Is this something that happens regularly? And obviously, if everybody is swearing on a daily basis, it wouldn't necessarily be reasonable to dismiss somebody who was swearing at their manager, for instance. But in a case called Mrs Damon versus Royal Mail Group, Mrs Damon was dismissed for swearing at her line manager. She'd been employed by Royal Mail for nine years when she was dismissed. And the circumstances were, according to the facts of the case, she'd been on the telephone, had been upset, and her manager had tried to intervene into the conversation to see if she was okay. Afterwards, there was what the employment tribunal described as an exchange of views. I would describe it as probably having a row after the the telephone call ended. And the employee, Mrs. Damon, told her line manager to F off. And she was dismissed for the use of bad language towards her line manager. 
And this went to the Employment Tribunal and the Employment Tribunal decided that actually, yeah, in these circumstances, looking at the reasonableness tests and looking at the um, situation at work, it was reasonable to dismiss her. So in that case, the misconduct there was swearing at her line manager. And that's not necessarily to say that swearing in all cases would amount to conduct to justify dismissal, but um, it just gives you an example of where the facts of each case are really pertinent to deciding if it's fair. The third reason for fair dismissal is redundancy. Now, most people know what redundancy is, but many people may not know that in order to be a redundancy dismissal, it must meet the definition which is set out in the Employment Rights Act. Now, for anybody who wants to have a look, you'll find it at section 139, subsection 1 of the Employment Rights Act, And the definition is that in order to be redundancy, it must be either an employer ceasing or intending to cease to carry on business for which the employee was employed. So that's what we would call a closure redundancy. So the employer, for instance, is closing down the business. That would amount to redundancy. The second circumstance is where the employer ceases or intends to cease to carry on that business where the employee was employed. So that would be a workplace closure for instance. So let's just say an employer has got several branches around the country and they decide to close half of them to cut costs. If the employee's branch closes, then that would be a workplace redundancy. And then finally, it's where there's a reduced requirement for work of the particular kind that the employee does. So let's just say, for example, an employer has a contract and it's to supply a thousand widgets to their customer. And the customer reduces their requirements, so now they only require 500 widgets. The employer would then have reduced requirements for employees because they wouldn't need as many because they don't need to produce as many widgets, for instance. So that's redundancy dismissal. And with redundancy, it is, again, necessary to follow a fair procedure before dismissing somebody, and I will talk about that again in episode three. The fourth reason is a statutory restriction. So this is where to continue to employ the employee would contravene a duty or restriction imposed by or under an enactment. So what that means is that, for instance, let's say the example of a lorry driver. So a lorry driver is employed to drive a lorry and they lose their license. They might not necessarily lose their license whilst working, but let's just say, you know, they're caught drink driving and as a result they are longer able to drive for a period of time. In that case, it would be illegal to continue to employ the employee to do his job and that would be your reason for dismissal. Another one would be in relation to, let's just say somebody has a role, say they work in a school and their criminal record shows that they have convictions which mean that they can't then work with vulnerable people and children. In that case it would again it would be illegal to continue to employ them and so it would be a fair reason for dismissal. Now in in the case of a statutory restriction you must actually know that they are in breach of that statutory restriction. You can't just think that they might be. You have to know before you can dismiss. And then finally it brings me on to the fifth reason for a fair dismissal, which is some other substantial reason. And this is actually the shortened version. It's really the long version is some other substantial reason of a kind such as to justify the dismissal of an employee holding the position which the employee held. 
And then it's, as I say, it's often shortened to some other substantial reason or an SOSR reason. And this is the catch-all. So in relation to some other substantial reason, it's designed to catch those sort of other scenarios that might not fit neatly into the other four potentially fair reasons. And because it's a catch-all, it does cover a wide range of scenarios. So I can't go into all of them with you. And this is where I say sometimes it's important to get advice before you dismiss somebody because you might think actually it comes under conduct and it doesn't. Or you might think actually we don't have a fair reason. It doesn't fit neatly into one of those categories. But you know, we're really concerned about this person's behaviour, for instance. In those circumstances, it might fall within the SOSR reason. And that's why I say it's important to get some advice. So let me give you some examples of some other substantial reason. One in which I've been advising on actually quite recently is where there is pressure from a third party to dismiss an employee. And this is where, for instance, let's just say you have a a contract to provide security services at a warehouse and you send along a security guard who's employed solely for that contract and they work on it. And then for some reason, there's a falling out or the warehouse manager or owner decides that they don't really like your security guard. Something happens and then they contact you and say, we don't want him on our site anymore. Get rid of him. Now, obviously, you need to follow a fair procedure and you need to look at this carefully before doing so. But if you do all of those things, then it could fall under the some other substantial reason for dismissal and you could be have a potentially fair reason there because of the customer's pressure for you to remove them from the site. Some other examples of SOSR reasons are where there is a refusal from the employee to accept a change to terms and conditions. So if you need to make changes to terms and conditions, an employee refuses to accept their new contract, then you can dismiss them, offer to re-engage them, and then that would be some other substantial reason. Where there are personality clashes, that would be some other substantial reason. Breakdown in trust and confidence, or the expiry of a limited contract. So there are a number of things that could amount to as some other substantial reason to justify dismissing the employee. Again, as I say, I recommend you get some advice on that if you are going to be doing it. So those are the five potentially fair reasons. So I'll just run back through them. We've got capability, conduct, redundancy, statutory restriction and some other substantial reason. Now when it comes to a claim for unfair dismissal, the burden of proof in relation to the reason for dismissal lies with the employer. So it's for the employer to show that the reason falls into one of those five and then it falls into the question of fairness, which is a neutral burden. There is a peculiarity where an employee claims automatic unfair dismissal and this is where an employee claims automatic unfair dismissal and they have the qualifying service for an ordinary unfair dismissal claim, so they've been employed for two years or more. Then the burden of proof is, as I just explained, with the employer to show the reason. Now, in a claim for automatic unfair dismissal where the employee doesn't have the required two-year service but they're able to bring the claim anyway because it's automatic unfair, then the burden of proving what the reason for the dismissal was lies with the employee. An interesting note there on who actually has to prove to the employment tribunal what the reason was. Now, with all of these things, as I've said throughout, it's not just a question of showing that it's the potentially fair reason. You have to then go on to look at the fairness of the decision and following a fair procedure, which I will talk about again in episode three of this mini-series. What I would say to you is if you are thinking of dismissing an employee and you're concerned about your liability for unfair dismissal, it's much better to get advice at the outset before you make that decision than try to mop up and deal with it later on. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you found it helpful. I don't ask very often, but if you are a regular podcast listener, wherever you listen to this podcast, I'd be really grateful if you could leave a review, select a five-star review, or send some comments or share with somebody. I've been doing this podcast for almost 10 years and the growth of the podcast has come from people sharing it getting great value from the content so I would be grateful if you are enjoying the podcast if you could please share it leave a comment or a review and it would really help others to help find the podcast and of course if you have any questions or topics you'd like us to cover in the future please don't hesitate to get in touch I always love to hear from podcast listeners Have a fantastic week ahead and I'll be back with the podcast in two weeks time. So I must just say to you that the information in this podcast is for information only. It's general review and a general update. It's always necessary to get specific legal advice about your circumstances. So please don't rely on anything that you've heard in this podcast. But please do feel free to contact me if you like further information or specific advice. 